partner, so why don't we pray and ask God to help us as we seek to sit under his word. Gracious Father, you tell us that you want to come like the winter rains and the spring rains that water the earth. We know that your word is good and can feed us. So please, as we wrestle now with it, give us understanding and hearts that want to believe and obey. Amen. I wonder how you feel when you discover that someone has been using you. Um, it's, not, it's not ever a pleasant feeling, is it? Because the thing is about being used is that someone looks like they're interested in knowing you, but actually they're not really. They just want to get something out of you. It's just a bit of a game for them. Now, I guess how you react to that depends upon who the person is. So in some situations, you just expect that the person isn't actually interested in knowing you. So, so the, other, the other week, we had someone come to our door who was a door-to-door saleswoman, as it turned out. And she was very pleasant and polite. She, actually, she spoke to me as though we were old friends and as though what she had to offer us would transform the lives of my children. Um, she pretended that she really wanted to know me. Um, but an hour later in the street, she didn't recognize me. And it's a little bit sad, but hey, I mean, that's kind of the deal, isn't it? That's just business. That's fine. She just wanted to get her commission. So I was sad, but I wasn't crushed. There are some people, though, who you've given your heart to, where if you discover that they're using you, then it is devastating. Um, one of my favorite TV programs is called Chuck. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. It's about a computer geek who somehow ends up as a US government spy. And the problem is that Chuck is a really nice guy. Like, he is just lovely. He's the kind of guy that I would like to be. And in one episode, he comes across this hard-nosed female spy who's managed to convince this gangland boss that she's in love with him and that she wants to marry him. And as the plot goes on, it's clear that, it's clear that she's using him. And Chuck doesn't know what to do with it because he's starting to feel sorry for this gangland boss because he just can't quite cope with the fact that he's being led on. And actually, as the audience, you start to have a bit of sympathy too. Now, it doesn't last long because the guy is a real baddie. But it is interesting how we always have sympathy with someone when we discover they're being used, when someone's pretending that they want to know them, but actually they're not interested in them. See, it's a horrible thing to discover that you're being used, that someone's playing you simply for what they can get out of you, and they're not interested in knowing you. I guess the problem is that it, it kind of becomes second nature to us, doesn't it? I mean, I, I guess maybe not in the brazen way of that female spy, but to a certain extent, it, it just kind of comes naturally to look at people in terms of what they can do for us, what we can get out of the relationship. I mean, how many marriages and relationships end simply because person A is no longer getting from person B what they really want. Or more mundanely, how often in the day do we just simply adjust what we're going to say or how we're going to say it to try and just subtly manipulate the other person to do what we want and not actually what's in their best interests? It's so easy to start relating to people in a way that isn't actually interested in who they are but simply wants what we can get out of it. Now, that's pretty sobering. It's pretty sad. But what happens when we start to treat God that way? 
What happens when we start thinking that we can relate to God simply for what we can get out of him and not wanting to know him? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is the book of Hosea. Um, And it is one of the most penetrating analyses of the human heart that you'll find. It it is brutally honest. And I I guess um, if you've been with us in previous weeks and you're going to stay with us till the end, you'll find it quite uncomfortable, as I have this week, as I've been wrestling with it. And if you have been with us, you'll know that the first three chapters or so of Hosea is is basically our autobiography. Hosea, this um, prophet from the 8th century BC, was called by the Lord God... Um, and told to go and marry a prostitute um, called Goma. And the story of their marriage has been, well, it's been horrific. It's been one of ongoing unfaithfulness, as, as this poor man would watch as his wife continued to sell herself to the highest bidder. And we've seen how this was what God intended, because it was meant to be a graphic and an ugly picture of what his people are doing to him because God's people, men and women alike, are spiritual adulterers, guilty of spiritual prostitution. That they're formally in a relationship with God, but they're running off after other gods. They're giving their heart, so to speak, to other lovers. Well, by chapter five, um, which is where we started this evening, we, we've reached the part of the prophecy. Where, where the real-life story of Hosea and Goma has just started to drift into the background, background. And the focus is very clearly on God's reaction to his people's unfaithfulness. And it's a message that they need to hear. If you've got your Bibles still open, uh, please do turn back to 903 if it's fallen shut. It's very clear that these people need to hear this lesson. Do you see that in 5 verse 1? Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen. O royal house, this judgment is against you. You can't miss it, can you? It's as though Hosea is trying to wake these people up out of their slumber. Um, they've been watching the, the tragic tale of Hosea and Goma unfold. Uh, and they've been talking about it in, in the post office. Um, they've been laughing at the sordid details of Goma's latest indiscretion as they've been queuing up at Tesco's. And Hosea says to them, don't you get it? It's about you. It's about you. Listen, wake up. But they don't get it. They don't get it. And so, in verse 4, Hosea starts to unpick the two fundamental problems that the people of God have. We're going to spend a bit of time looking at what these two problems are. I wonder if you see what the problems are in verse 4. See, the first problem... It's very simple. It's that their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. These people are so in love with with their sin, with their evil deeds, that they can't envisage giving those things up in order to come back to the Lord. I wonder if you know how to catch a monkey. I don't know if you know how to catch a monkey. Apparently, native hunters in, in Africa have an ingenious way of doing this. Um, they make a small cage, a bit like a bird cage, and they find the juiciest orange they can get hold of and put it inside the cage, and then they tie the cage to a tree, and then they go and hide in the bushes. And along comes this monkey, I mean, whistling or whatever monkeys do, and it sees the orange, and it wants the orange, and it loves the idea, the prospect of being able to eat that orange. 
So the monkey comes up and slides its hand into the cage, grabs hold of the orange, and tries to walk off with it. But the orange is too big to fit through the bars of the cage. And the monkey pulls and pulls and pulls, and it cannot get the orange out of the cage. And it keeps pulling until the hunters just walk up and throw a net over it. See, it would be the simplest thing in the world for that monkey to escape from the hunters. It just needs to let go of the orange. It really is that simple. But it cannot, because it is so captivated by the orange that it can't envisage letting go of it. Well, that is what God says his people are like. See, all they need to do is let go of their sin. Give up their lying, give up their hating, their envy, their greed, their pride. It's that simple, just let go of it. But they can't do it. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. They're so in love with these behaviours, with these thoughts, with their sin, that they cannot envisage letting go of it. Their sin is so attractive to them. It promises so much that they can't imagine giving it up. And I guess that gives us pause for thought, doesn't it? I mean, are, 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 we, are we any different? Do you know the worst problem with sin? The worst problem with sin is that it's so attractive, isn't it? That's the worst problem with sin. I mean, that's why we're tempted by it. If sin always looked really stupid and ugly, then life would be really easy as a Christian. But sin doesn't. It always looks attractive. It, it promises so much. You get that voice whispering in your head, oh, just... Just tell that little line of tax return. No one will know. And just think of all that you could do with all that, all that you could do with all that extra cash. Or you're, you're sitting on your sofa late at night. You think, oh, just just do a bit of channel flicking. Just see if you can find something that's just a little bit saucy. Go on, you'll feel really good. You'll you'll you'll, you'll enjoy. And who would know? What harm is it going to do? A little bit of pornography never hurt anyone. Sin always feels attractive but it will always ensnare us. It leaves us like a monkey with its hand around an orange and unable to let go. See, that's what God says the first problem is with his people, that their deeds will not permit them to return to their God. They are in love with their sin. Uh, the second problem that he exposes is maybe, maybe even more tragic. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. They don't acknowledge the Lord. And there's a bit of a pun here, because in verse 3, we're told that God says, I know all about Ephraim. I know. But in verse 4, Israel, or Ephraim, do not acknowledge or literally know the Lord. They don't know him. He's their covenant partner. He's their husband. And they don't know him. They don't even want to know him. They've forgotten who he is. They've forgotten that he's God. What does that mean? What does it mean to forget that he's God? Well, they've forgotten that he's all-knowing. They've forgotten that he knows the secrets of their hearts better than they do. He says, I know all about Ephraim in verse 3. Israel's not hidden from me. Their innermost thoughts 
Uh, the ones that we'd never admit to having are played out before God just like subtitles on a film. God knows them. And yet God's people, Israel, are carrying on regardless as though it doesn't really matter, as though he doesn't know. If my, if my wife, Susie, um, knew all of the foul and self-obsessed thoughts that cross my mind, um, even in the hour before I get to breakfast in the morning, then I'd lock myself in the toilet. I wouldn't come out. I'd be so ashamed. I'd be devastated. But verse 5, Israel's arrogance testifies against them. They're, they're so caught up with themselves that they can't see why God would have a problem with them. They've forgotten that he knows everything, that he knows their hearts. What else does it mean to forget that he's God? Well, they've forgotten that he's sovereign, that he rules over everything, and they've forgotten that he's a judge who'll punish evil. The, um, the details of verses 8 to 13 um, are a little bit hard to pin down. It's clearly a history, a reference to historical events, and it's likely that it refers to something called the um, Syro-Ephraimite War, um, which you may want to know for a pub quiz Bible trivia round at some point. Israel was invaded by a kingdom to the north, um, and it was an awful war, as I guess many wars were at that time. So in verse 8, sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. This is calling the people to battle. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon. Lead on, O Benjamin. All these towns are being told to get ready for war. But their preparations are going to be in vain. It doesn't matter how, many, how much time they spend in boot camp. It's going to do no good. Verse 9, Ephraim will be laid waste. On the day of reckoning, among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. See, this invasion that's coming, this war, isn't ultimately because the leader of Assyria wants to expand his empire. It's a day of reckoning. God is going to hold his people to account for their sin. It's judgment day. I wonder if you saw that in the end of verse 10. See what ultimately lies behind the destruction coming on Israel. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Verse 12, I'm a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. God's anger has been so provoked by his people's spiritual adultery that he's coming to punish them. But still they don't get it. Still, still they do not see what is going on. Wake up! And they don't get it. Why? Because they don't know him. And so, in verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to the Lord and, and begged for... No, he didn't. Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. Do you see why that's so foolish? Israel are looking at this coming war and they think that the problem is the size of their army. They think the problem is, is the size of their biceps, that they're just not strong enough to match this army that's coming in. And so they're looking for help by making alliances with nations with a bigger army. But, but the problem isn't the size of their army. The problem is their spiritual adultery. So it doesn't matter who they end up with on their side. They've offended the Lord. See, verse um, 
uh, verse 13, um, right at the end. But he, the king of Assyria, isn't able to cure you. He can't heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Where do you look when things start to go wrong? Who do you turn to for help? Because Hosea says the answer will show whether you know God or not. Whether you're looking for a king of Assyria with a bigger army or the Lord who alone can rescue you. So Israel don't know God. He's been their husband for hundreds of years, but they don't know him and they're not interested in knowing him. And possibly the greatest tragedy is that they haven't the faintest idea how much he loves them. Sure, they've forgotten how much he knows, that he knows their hearts. Sure, they've forgotten that he's God, that he rules everything and he will judge. But they've forgotten how much he loves them. That is the reason God has been brought to this point of judging his people. It's because of his love. He longs for them to return. Let's look back to 5 verse 15. Then I, this this lion who savaged them, will go back to my place until... They admit their guilt, and they will seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Just glance down to 6 verse 4 again, and just see the emotion in these words. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. It's a desperate picture, isn't it? This is the unfaithful wife who each night shows remorse, professes love, but knows that the morning is just another chance to run after other men. And so the Lord says that your love is like a mist. You know what a mist is like, don't you? A mist, in no time at all, it's just disappeared. You can't grab hold of it. It's insubstantial. It amounts to nothing. And no sooner have you seen it than it's gone. Verse 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement or knowledge, knowing God, rather than burnt offerings. God longs for his people to return to him. He loves them, but that love is continually frustrated. All he finds is pretense. They give the impression that they want to know him with their sacrifices and their offering, but in truth they're not interested God's people are just using him. And do you know what the name for that is? It's called religion. Religion is when when you do all kinds of God stuff, but you're just not interested in knowing him. God longs for repentance, for people to want to know him. But all he finds at this point in Hosea is religion. That's why in in 5 verse 6, when they go with their flocks and herds to to perform the sacrifice at the temple, they will not find him. He's withdrawn himself from them. They are unfaithful to the Lord. Religion. It's not interested in knowing God. It's just using him. Religion goes through the motions to try and get from God what you want, but at the end of the day, it's just pretense. 
and it never works because you can't fool God. So, the question facing each of us, I guess, at the end of this pretty tough passage is very simple. There's a very simple question God has got for each of us today. It's this. God is saying, do you want to know me? Do you want to know me? Or is it just a pretense? Are you interested in religion or repentance? Religion can take many forms. Um, It can be frenzied and frenetic like the prophets of Baal. Um, It can be disciplined and diligent like the Pharisees. It can be quiet and reflective. It can involve great self-sacrifice. But at root, religion won't give up its sin and is not actually interested in knowing God. Religion says, I'll be fine. I do good things. Um, I'll be fine. I, I go to church. I'll be fine. I give money to charity. But in the final analysis, religion isn't actually interested in a relationship with God. It doesn't actually want to know him. It's just using him. That's the first option, religion. The second option is repentance, which is what God desires. It's what he longs for from his people. Come back with me to 5 verse 15. Then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt, and they will seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. A repentant heart admits its guilt. A repentant heart mourns over its sin. It it hates the way it keeps being drawn back to religion even. I mean, this side of Jesus' return, each of us will find that we, we just drift back to religion. That's why this passage speaks to all of us. Even the most mature Christian will find their conscience pricked at points. But a heart that is marked by repentance, daily repentance, won't be content with playing with religion. It'll confess it to the Lord. A repentant heart doesn't find it hard to confess sin and admit failure. About 20 years ago, the um, the comedian Anna Russell wrote her um, psychiatric folk song. Um, And it starts with these words. She says, I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eyes. And, and it goes on and on and on. As the psychiatrist offers explanation, after explanation, and digs back into her past. Um, and uh, the song ends with um, this little refrain. She says, I'm happy now that I have learned the lesson this has taught. For everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. It's, it's a tongue-in-cheek song, but, but it's, it's quite penetrating, isn't it? As a culture, we find it very hard to actually admit our guilt genuinely. We can use the word sorry, but to actually admit guilt, we find it hard. It's so easy to find someone else to blame. Well, God isn't satisfied with pretending. The first mark of repentance is that we actually admit our guilt. And the second is that we earnestly seek to know the Lord. And and this is a wonderful thing. Um, Hosea gives his listeners a prayer of repentance in 6, verses 1 to 3. Um, These are words that God longs to hear from his people. They're words he longs to hear from each of us today. 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. 
After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord, literally know him. Let us press on to acknowledge, to know him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Is that the God you know? Is that the God that you want to know, that you seek to know with your heart? He's a God who heals and revives and restores. He's a God who longs for us to live and thrive in his presence. And his grace is like the spring rains that water the earth. He is a God who has loved you like no one else ever has or ever could. Because he himself, in the person of his son, stepped down into these verses. Jesus himself was torn to pieces by his father's wrath on the cross for us, so we could be forgiven. So for all of our pretense and our religion, we could be given hearts that want to know him. And on the third day, he was restored that we might live in his presence. Repentance or religion? That's the question this passage gives us. Do you seek to know God or just to use him? I'm going to leave a minute now for each of us just to do business with the Lord in our own hearts, quietly before him.